Well, good evening and welcome to Failing Up. This is Tim Marr on the last Sunday, the last weekend in August 2021. Uh, thank you, Jungle Jim, for that wonderful, wonderful musical introduction. It is so great to be here. Here we are in the, in the midst of upstate New York, broadcasting, recording, I should say, from the banks of the mighty Seneca River leading up to the Great Lake Ontario, feeding the St. Lawrence Seaway, which flows out into the Atlantic Ocean. Or if you take a left, you head over to Toronto or Buffalo or Niagara Falls, get yourself a barrel. Uh, right now, here in upstate New York, the center of the state, Syracuse, New York, is the Greater New York State Fair. The Greater New York State Fair. Wonderful. The Greater New York State Fair has uh, been here for, I don't know, hundreds of hundred over hundred years uh, in Syracuse, New York, where the whole state comes together to celebrate uh, its annual, uh, all of the diversity and everything that it has to offer. It's a really interesting place. It's smaller this year because of COVID. The attendance is down, but we still, you know, we've had the Beach Boys and Melissa Esridge and uh, Southside Johnny's playing there tonight. Big Southside Johnny. Uh, grew up with Bruce Springsteen. I played with him down in Asbury Park. Uh, great village, the Native American village there, all kinds of stuff. So it's a fun, fun thing to go to the, the New York State Fair. And I believe every state has their own fair, which is a great time. And maybe uh, something from years gone by where the state fair was really the center hub of the, of the, uh, of the year, of the celebration, the celebration of the year for, for each state, really to show off what you have. You know, in New York State, there's so much here to show off from agriculture to uh, arts and culture. And of course, you know, in the southern end of the state, we have the greatest city on, the, on earth, New York City. And you get up to upstate and you have some beautiful roving hills and mountains where the 1980 Olympics were held in Lake Placid. And you get over to Niagara Falls and the roving hills in the middle of the state, and the apples and the, the foliage. And it's really a unique, uh, unique place to visit. So here we are on this Sunday night as uh, summer begins to wind down. The unofficial start of fall will be next weekend, Labor Day weekend, where we kids uh, go back to school. So many, many around the country and the world have already gone back to school. And uh, leaves will turn, and uh, we'll get back to uh, crisper nights here in the Northeast. But it's been really um, a week of loss and a week of reflection. You know, uh, especially if you're, you're well, older than me, and maybe my age even, but, you know, a lot of loss this week. We lost one of the Everly brothers, um, I believe, this week, uh, who was way before my time, was before my time, but, but Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones um, passed away this week. And I, I just found out prior to recording this episode that Ed Asner, wonderful actor, Ed Asner has passed away at the age of 91, uh, iconic actor. And Ed Asner was um, part of the uh, historic and it's nothing less than saying that if you grew up in the 70s or you had an opportunity to experience, you know, the three power networks uh, during the 70s. But on Saturday night in the 70s, there have been no better lineup in the 70s or in the history of television than what CBS had on Saturday night from 1972 through 1977 with um, uh, Mary Tyler Moore. Ground started off with All in the Family, groundbreaking show, Mary Tyler Moore. For the year of 1973, you throw MASH in there. Then you have the Bob Newhart show, and then you end it all with Carol Burnett, which was really the uh, forefront uh, forerunner to many of the um, variety shows we have today. Kind of a, uh, a soft uh, adult version at the time of Saturday Night Live. Then you had Saturday Night Live come on, but that wasn't CBS. Just a power night. And Ed Asner was Lou Grant on Mary Tyler Moore, an accomplished 
uh, stage actor, had been in uh, many movies, you know, been some movies in that point uh, from Kansas or from, I believe, Missouri. I can't remember where he's from, actually. But I know he went to Chicago, University of Chicago, to major in journalism. Then he uh, fell in love with acting and uh, went to several theater groups, uh, came back, performed in Chicago on the stage with the Second City uh, with Mike Nichols and some of the founders of the, uh, of the Second City comedy troupe, world-famous comedy troupe, and went on to uh, do several movies. Really an iconic career. Uh, when you think about the things that he did, he was part of the Mary Tyler Moore show, which at the time was revolutionary in showing the uh, positioning uh, a female, a woman, in a leadership role in a television station, a single woman making it on her own. So it really was a single woman making it on her own, living her life independently, uh, in this great comedy with a great cast, um, you know, Ted Baxter, Betty White, um, Gavin McLeod, um, uh, all these people were on that show. Um, and it was really a, um, a wonderful show. But the messaging was, you know, it was, it was all new to have the lead character be a single female as an associate producer at a television station, which in 1972 was really unheard of. And it just was groundbreaking. Ed Asner's character was really key to that as kind of the grumpy father figure to uh, Mary. And so, uh, you know, he went on to that. And also in the 70s alone, he then played in um, Rich Man, Poor Man, but he was also in the 70s. In 1977, he was in the historic miniseries, probably one of the first miniseries, I believe, out there, one of the first ever, which at the time was just groundbreaking and still is to this day is a great, everyone should see this miniseries. I mean, the actors in LeVar Burton, um, just the whole cast of Roots, Roots, uh, came out in, I believe, 1977. Ed Asner was in Roots. And then he went on to have the Lou Grant show. And, he, you know, he was so diverse. He was played Santa Claus in Elf. I mean, uh, it's just really um, uh, a real stretch and, and, a, and a real treasure that we had to experience his artwork. And um, Ed Asner at 91. Uh, passes away and, and he'll be missed. Uh, his work will will be with us for, for, for many, many years to come, you know, from uh, Mary Tyler Moore to Roots to being having Will Ferrell sit on his lap in Elf. Just an incredible, incredible career uh, at Asner. And so everything, you know, sympathies go out to him and his family. And, you know, it brings me back and maybe many of us back to a time where, you know, we might have thought it was simpler. You had three TV stations. You turned on the television on Saturday night, and there was where there were those shows. It just seemed to blend together. You know, All in the Family. My goodness gracious, All in the Family was this groundbreaking show which just dealt with topics of the day that you'll know, talk about taking, um, uh, putting out what was underneath the surface and putting it right in front of there, from racism to homosexuality to um, rape to all of these taboo topics were put right out there with humor and showing how humor, how humor can be a vehicle to um, enlighten us, how humor can be a vehicle to uh, convey an uncomfortable message and how humor can educate us. And that's exactly what Saturday Night Live did through the, through the shows that they did and the topics that they covered. You know, uh, Rowan and Martin's Laughing did that. And of course, the original cast of Saturday Night Live and the writers on Saturday Night Live came right out and built upon that. And uh, the, the satire on Saturday Night Live, which had been being, that kind of performance had been being done for years on the stage, smart, educational, you know, educated satire on the, on the stages of um, Second City in Chicago and Toronto. 
just really uh, takes you back to the dry humor of Bob Newhart, the well-developed characters, the great writing, you know, and then the, the, the funny uh, humor, on, you know, kind of like uh, being at a party and watching, you know, great talent on uh, Carol Burnett's show. Just a great, great talent and a great way to wind up, wind up the night. But what a power night. You know, those are my early teen years. You know, my tween to teen years was really, uh, that's what we did on Saturday night. You know, that's how exciting my life was. But on Saturday night, uh, you know, 13, 14, that's what, you know, I was home and watching TV from 8 o'clock at night to 11 o'clock at night if I stayed awake, if I could stay awake. But it was really... Uh, Really quite a night. So the loss of Ed Asner really, you know, when, when you lose uh, someone who was uh, such a part of your youth and such a part of your growth, you kind of feel, uh, even though, you know, I never knew the man, I never met the man, um, you feel as if um, you lost a, a dear a dear friend and someone who guided you through probably some difficult Saturday nights. Ed Asner. Also this week, we lost Charlie Watts. Charlie Watts, the drummer for the Rolling Stones, the self-proclaimed greatest band of all time, world's greatest band, self-proclaimed Rolling Stones. And um, I happen to be a Stones fan. Um, I am a Stones, an early Stones fan. And I think that, you know, talk about a guy who um, really behind the scenes just drove that band. And, you're, you know, as, as usual, you don't appreciate people like that until they're gone and you, and you hear all the great things they did and you hear the tributes from all the other musicians on what a, you know, fantastic drummer he was, a jazz drummer. And I remember reading in uh, Keith uh, Richards' biography how once they got Charlie Watts in the band, the band was going to go someplace. The band was legitimate. You know, back in the early 60s and 63, they really wanted to get Charlie Watts. And they got Charlie Watts. And the Rolling Stones took off from that point. I think it's interesting when you think of the Rolling Stones in the 60s, you know, some of the great music that they they wrote, you know, in the original Rolling, the Rolling Stones with Charlie Watts, Bill Wyman, Keith Richards, Mitch Jagger, and uh, Brian Jones. Those were the Rolling Stones. The band was actually formed by Brian Jones. They used to say it was Brian Jones's band. Um, and Brian was eventually fired from the band and died, drowned in his swimming pool. Um, but you look at the Stones, and their early music was just really incredible. I mean, the, the most, you know, their, their first, I think the first 10 years of the Rolling Stones, the music they put out was really fantastic. And um, it's interesting because you see the, 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 you know, you think of Mick Jagger more, and you think of Keith Richards when you think of the Rolling Stones, you know, and Wyman, who left the band in the early 90s, who's, um, you know, back in the shadows, the bass player. Bass players usually are. And Charlie Watts was a steady drummer. You know, a drummer is you know, the steady guy in the background who keeps it going. He's kind of like, you know, comforting. You, know, you always know a band has a good drummer and they're there. You usually don't hear from them much, but they just keep it going. You know, and you can hear their drums driving that beat and driving that song. Uh, of course, you had Mick Jagger as the front man, probably the greatest front man of all time. But what was really interesting is, you know, people always compare, you know, who was better, the Stones or the Beatles during that whole, you know, British invasion, even to this day, who was better, the Stones or the Beatles? And, and I would argue that there is no comparison between the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Um, I think they're two separate entities. They're two separate animals. You know, um, the Beatles came first. The Beatles were, you know, the Rolling Stones uh, were a group who just loved the blues. Charlie Watts loved jazz. And Keith Richards, Brian Jones, and Mick Jagger just loved the blues. 
What I think makes the Beatles unique and special is the Beatles created this unique sound that was the Beatles. And the Beatles were a phenomenon. Now, I was five years old when the Beatles came to the United States, but they were just a huge phenomenon. I mean, the Beatles were bigger than Michael Jackson in the early 80s. They were, you know, they were just big. Everything was the Beatles. And their music was new. Their harmonies were new. The songs they wrote, you know, they wrote the wrong songs. And they were just very different. And they evolved. You know, they evolved. Their music evolved. And sometimes I hear people say, well, they, they weren't good. They were great musicians. And their music was great. And there's really no, it's apples and oranges. You know, and I don't know how you even begin to compare the two, except that they were both part of the British invasion, but the Beatles were first. And I think the Beatles had to be first. I think you needed a band like the Beatles to open up that door. I think without the Beatles, you wouldn't have had the Stones come through. Without the Beatles, you wouldn't have had the Who come through. You wouldn't have the Kinks come through. You wouldn't have had Hermits, Hermits come through. You wouldn't have a band that a lot of people forget about right on the tail end of the Beatles that were huge at the time, but didn't last was the Dave Clark Five. The Beatles had to be the band to open the door. They were marketed smartly. They were talented to, to write the music. They were witty. They were charming. You know, and really, in real life, if you look at the Rolling Stones, who are considered the bad boys of rock and roll, and you look at the Beatles, in reality, the Beatles were more bad boys than the Rolling Stones. I mean, the Beatles came from Liverpool, tough kids, tough neighborhood. The Stones, some of them, you know, Jagger and Richards, they came from, you know, middle, middle class families in London and, you know, um, pretty secure families and, you know, the, the McCartney and Lennon child, teen years were just tragic with you know, death of a young mother for both of them. So, yeah, you know, so to compare the two, I don't think it can because and then it's, you know, different styles of music, really. Beatle music is Beatle music and Rolling Stone music is Rolling Stone music. And the Rolling Stone music is really, um, really blues, blues and country. And you, and you hear those those strong influences in their music, blues and country, and you have a jazz drummer, you have a gifted, I mean, Keith Richards was just a guitar player off the charts, and still is, um, who just lives to play the guitar and is um, just fantastic. And the musical genius he had was some of the uh, way he was able to uh, manipulate and play a guitar, and Charlie Watts on the drums, and you take a guy like Mick Jagger who was studying James Brown and, and, and had that, you know, blue that blues voice down. You know, and there were times some people accused the Stones of being more black than the blues singers. And they really uh, that was their music. And in the and Brian Jones is just a gifted musician, played multiple instruments, and they just loved him. The blues. And and if you listen to those early Stone songs from sixty-four, even right up into seventy-four. There's a lot of that influence on there. There's a lot of that, you know, uh, real great music. I think Sympathy for the Devil is one of the best songs ever written. And then you get the Stones more into the later 70s when they, you know, they start um, evolving more into disco. Jagger was interested in uh, becoming more of a disco, you know, getting into the disco sound. And it was, it was kind of, you know, Misuse is a good song, but it was kind of a stretch for the Stones. And then you get into, I think after, I think after the 70s, the Stones become uh, a band performing, you know, they put out records and I know they were, they had, you know, some hits, um, Tattoo You and those, but nothing like, nothing like those early, those early records that even when you go to their concerts, those are what people, the songs, people want to hear them sing. And, um, but it's an interesting group because, you know, it's uh, made up with great musicians 
But the, the person that kept the stones together, the person that really made the money was Mick Jagger, because Mick Jagger is a brilliant businessman. And Mick Jagger really controlled, you know, had his fingers on the whole operation of the stones. And he really, uh, I think it was Mick Jagger who really moved rock and roll into the corporate world where concerts were being sponsored. And, you know, he, you know, just like athletic events and he, you know, turning a profit in those ways. And I think, you know, at times when the stones were, you know, in a, in a place where they were struggling either with drug addiction or not getting along, I think it was Jagger who really helped them to held them together from a business sense standpoint. I think he really held the band together and, and created that strong brand. But if you get into their music, I think you look at those, you know, those, those early years as just being really incredible. And the other thing about the Rolling Stones is they, for, for, for some pieces of them, they were interchangeable. As I said, Bill Wyman left the band. You know, Original Stone left the band in the early 90s. Um, Brian Jones died in the late 60s and was replaced by Mick Taylor, who left the band in the uh, mid-70s and then came in Roddy Wood, Ronnie Wood. So, you know, if, if you're going to look at the Original Stones in that band um, of uh, two years ago, the Original Stones, you had three. You had uh, uh, Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, and Charlie Watts. Those were the original Rolling Stones. Um, the other one, one was dead and one was, uh, had left the band and Ian Stewart, who was a big, uh, big part of the band, they called the other Rolling Stone had died in, I believe in the seventies, but the brand was so big and the, the characters were so big in the band that, um, and the promotion was so big that the stones stayed the stones. The difference when you look at the Beatles is the Beatles are the fab four. You know, and you can't interchange the Beatles. I mean, and to the Stones, you always have to have Mick Jagger in the Stones. And you always have to have Keith Richards in the Stones. You always have to have Charlie Watts in the Stones. And now that he's gone, and again, you know, he's 80 years old, and they, they you know, they, they really produced a lot of great music. But the Beatles were the, the Beatles were the four, four Beatles. And you couldn't substitute a Beatle with anybody else. If Ringo left the band, they weren't the Beatles. If you went up with four people and you were missing Paul McCartney and had a substitute, they weren't the Beatles. The same with any of the other. They, they weren't interchanged. They weren't, you couldn't substitute for the Beatles. They had to be the Fab Four. The other thing with the Beatles is they um, they wrote for 10 years. I mean, they, their, their records came out, well, 64 to, to 69. You know, all, those, all that great music, 19, you know, that was on the charts here in the U.S., 64 to 69, Meet the Beatles and Up. And, uh, and they ended. And the, and the Beatles went on individually to have very successful solo careers. Ringo Starr, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison. And they, uh, but the Beatles stayed the Beatles. And what happens when uh, any entity, a, a show, television program, an athletic career, or performer, they end at their peak, you're always left with that image of them. So the Beatles never got old, you know. The, the, Paul McCartney got old, and Ringo Starr got old, and George Harrison got old. Tragically, John Lennon didn't have a chance to, but they never got old. So you never looked at the Beatles as being old, and you never looked at them their music really being outdated because it wasn't being performed and performed and performed. It was always being played at its peak. And that's what really puts the Beatles in the forefront of any of those great bands. I'm not saying that they all weren't great bands, because they all were great bands, but I think you have to put the the Beatles in, in a separate category. And then you just think of those musicians in those bands. You know, uh, I would argue that, uh, you know, everybody wants to be a rock star, did want to be a rock star at one time, but those bands, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, the Who, the Kinks, 
Uh, and then when you got into the 70s, with you know, bands like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and Bob Seger and the Eagles and all these bands, these bands, Linda Ronstadt, um, these bands lived for music. I mean, the Rolling Stones did not, it, you know, in 19, early 60s, even the Beatles, too, you didn't get in a band to get on MTV back then. You didn't get in a band to get rich back then. You formed a band because you loved the music. You know, Keith Richards, Brian Jones, and Mick Jagger loved the blues. They loved the blues. And that's how Jagger and Richards met at a subway train station while Jagger was holding a blues album. Loved the blues. McCartney and Lennon loved rock and roll. Loved it. And um, so those bands, and when you hear some of them talk, you know, in their autobiographies, they'll say, oh, you know, we, we thought we were only going to last about a year, but we lasted this long. We became this. And, I th and the rest of them are like that, too. I think the difference is, is as rock and roll became much more popular and as it became much more commercial throughout the years, and I think when you get into the 80s with MTV, uh, individuals wanted to get into rock and roll to make money. They wanted to get into music to make money. They wanted to get video, and they saw it as a way to make a lot of money. And what happened is I believe many of the, much of the music was diluted as a result because it wasn't just about the music. I mean, the Rolling Stones... In 1967, if they were together in 1967, just as a normal club band still, and not, not the world-class band they became, those guys would have been just as happy playing in a little smoky blues bar as they would have been on the Ed Sullivan Show, and the same with the Beatles, and the same with the Who, and the same with the Kinks, you know, the same with Springsteen and Asbury Park. Those groups really just loved the music, and that was that's the reason they did what they did. They weren't thinking commercial stuff, albeit down the road. They were able to get successful, and Charlie Watts simply was a man about the music. He was there to play the drums and to play the drums that he loved, and he played the drums in rock and roll, and then he would go off the stage, and he played the drums the way he really loved it with the jazz, but all I can say is, um, you know, those groups, that music, the 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 paths that they paved um, are just wonderful. And I think that era of music is just incredible. And I think, you know, there have been great bands since then. I mean, I think of Nirvana and how much they love the music and Pearl Jam and how they just played, you know, uh, for music. I think of Lady Gaga and, and some of these individuals who just really are off the charts, just unbelievably uh, talented. You know, Billie Eilish, I think, is really a a whole, a whole refreshing new type of breed of musician. But, but today's about, you know, we lost a acting icon and we lost a rock and roll icon. And here where I'm broadcasting from, where I'm, where I'm recording from is uh, in upstate New York and Syracuse. This past week, we lost a bartending icon. Uh, Peter Coleman was a bartender, iconic bartender here in Syracuse in the Tipperary Hill area. And if you're Irish descent and your families go back to Tipperary Hill, as mine do, uh, Peter Coleman ran a bar up there. He took over a little little family bar in the mid-50s, and he turned it into uh, an enterprise. He turned it into a neighborhood gathering. Uh, he expanded it. He put in um, big pavilions for events. He made St. Patrick's Day a, a neighborhood celebration. Not only did he do that, he spent his own money and kept the neighborhood, Tipperary Hill neighborhood, true to its core. He kept it, um, he maintained it, and he built it. And he was really more than a bartender and a bar owner. He was really someone who was, who was a neighbor to the Tipperary Hill people, where the only traffic light in the world where the green is on top. Uh, he really uh, built that neighborhood and kept that uh, as a historic landmark for everyone in the area who comes into town to visit. And um, 
He was also a neighbor to the entire Central New York community. I his brother ended up having a bar down in D.C. So rest in peace, Peter Coleman, Charlie Watts, and uh, Ed Asner. And here comes Jungle Jim with his music. So this is Tim Marr. Uh, next time I talk to you, it's going to be September. Try to remember the tides of September. Take it away, Jungle Jim. This is Failing Up. <laughs>